Do you have a, uh, a favorite figurine in your nativity set? Do you have one of those? See, when I was a kid, I was always, you know, they used to do pageants and stuff like that, the Christmas pageants. I was always cast as a shepherd. And I uh, never really loved that role because my favorite people in the nativity scene have always been the magi, the wise men, right? They're hard to figure. They're enigmatic. They're different. They super don't belong. And they're the coolest people in the show, right? I know Jesus is there. Let's you know, I'll take them off. The Magi have always captivated my imagination. And one of the questions that it always raises to me is, what on earth were they doing there? What is the context of all of this? And I've preached a number of sermons about the Magi over the past couple of years, and I'm not going to get too deep into them. But I do want to get into this question of, what is going on in this scene that draws the Magi to Jesus in this moment. So, Matthew chapter 2, this is what we're going to read together, uh, starting in verse 1. This is the story of the Magi. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem uh, in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. You remember Magi would be, we talk about them as three kings, right? Well, first of all, we don't know that there were three. We know there were three gifts. We have no idea how many of them there were, except that they were plural. And that they were kings is really not true. They were more kingmakers. Uh, they were sort of uh, astrologists who had a significant role to play, uh, specifically in the Babylonian culture, of elevating people to kingship, or of announcing kings, or of um, advising kings through the supernatural. So, these folks, who now even more, if you didn't know that about the Magi, even more, you're like, what the heck uh, are showing up? They come from the east to Jerusalem and ask, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. Now, we've talked about this before, right? Herod didn't really know the Scriptures, so he had to call people. Uh, and they told him, well, it's in Bethlehem in Judea. They replied, for this is what the prophet has written. Uh, remember, this is Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Herod calls the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, <clears throat> report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. <clears throat> After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw this child with his mother Mary. They bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Fascinating story. 
And like I said, it leads me to ask the question, what is going on? What is the context? What is it exactly that Jesus is arriving into that leads, this, leads to this kind of scene? Kingmakers from the east coming to announce a king. What exactly is going on? And here's what I want to suggest to you, that oftentimes the narrative of Advent hides from us the true reality of, in fact, what is going on. It's almost too cute, right? A little baby born in a manger. Everything is sort of country perfect, right, in that setting. And yet, what's actually going on is a king arriving for battle. And Matthew wants this on display from Jump Street. That there's no hiding in the cuteness or the perfection or the idyllic nature of a nativity scene what in fact is happening? A king is coming to set up a kingdom, and that is going to be a direct threat to a lot of people. You ask who? Well, in this chapter, specifically a guy named Herod. Right? Now Herod, if you're unfamiliar with him, is the king. Uh, king's a strong word, but he's the ruler of Israel at that particular time. But he is an illegitimate king. He's not fully Jewish. Um, and he's a propped-up king, meaning that he's established by the Romans who are really ruling the whole area. And he's pledged his allegiance to them, and so they've put him there to sort of govern under, uh, underneath them. And what you need to know about Herod is that he holds on to power by whatever means necessary. He was utterly ruthless. Now, into this context come some, some form of pomp and circumstance from the East, right? And we have to believe, based on the nature of who they were, that they came with a caravan of sorts. That they did not slip into the country in some kind of espionage uh, mission. But they came kind of with a lot of fanfare. And they come right into the face of this man, who is the sitting king, and they say to the sitting king, oh, we heard the real king was just born. Do you know where he is? To this man, a propped up, paranoid, ruthless, illegitimate ruler. Here's what you need to know from Jump Street Church. The word gospel, the Greek word euangelia, is translated literally good news, right? But the gospel is not good news to sitting rulers. You hear me? The gospel is not good news to people in charge. Here's why. Because the gospel is disenthroning truth spoken to people in power. And we know that from Jump Street because Herod hears it and he knows exactly what's going on. And what does he say? What does it say? He was greatly disturbed, right? In other words, he was already plotting to take care of this thing. The gospel is not good news to people who are in power because it speaks disenthroning truth to them. And here come the Magi speaking this gospel to this would-be yet illegitimate king. And we know what happens. 
Herod, almost uh, mimicking the storyline of the Old Testament. Remember the stories of Saul and David? And Saul is king for a little while, but then God says, you're not the king. David's going to be the king. And, and Saul's kind of like, yeah, I like David, but secretly he's trying to like, do anything he can to put David to his demise. In the same way here we have Herod sort of playing the game to pretend like he's interested in this baby and yet plotting, we know later, to kill him for his ultimate demise. It ultimately leads Herod to kill all the babies to and under in the city of Bethlehem. But here's the thing with Jesus. He's elusive. And he eludes Herod. Joseph, warned by a dream, takes the baby and Mary, and he escapes into Egypt. In essence, Jesus goes into a temporary exile to elude the threats of the illegitimate king. You see this? And yet, he returns a little while later victorious. What Matthew doesn't tell us is what happens to Herod. But anyone in the first century reading this gospel story would have been well aware of what happened to Herod. Herod, who was trying to hold on to power by, uh, by all means, this ruthless Herod, so ruthless that he killed his own sons because he perceived them to be a threat. Augustus Caesar, who was the ruler of the Roman Empire at the day, said this about Herod. He said, it's better to be his pig than his son. Right? And now, literally hell-bent on killing Jesus, instead sees his own demise. And he dies in an awful way. Uh, Josephus, the, the Jewish historian, writes in his Antiquities that Herod died an awful death, what he called ulcerated entrails. I'm not exactly sure what that is, but it sounds awful, doesn't it? And he says the stench was so pervasive and that he was convulsing, and that he was burning up a fever, and that there were bodily discharges all around that led to his soon demise in his attempt to crush the rightful king. So what I want you to know, Matthew at his Gospel is not just telling an interesting story about magi that come from the east and the baby, and all this is really interesting, and then we'll get on later to all the Jesus stuff. He's setting the whole story up. The whole story is being told right here in this beginning chapter that we should expect this kind of thing from Jesus because He brings victory. He's our victorious King. Because what Matthew will go on to tell us is what we're well aware of, is that it, Jesus was not just a threat to Herod. Right? He was a threat to religious leaders who wanted to hold on to power. He was a threat to the Roman Empire when statements began being made of him that he was the true kurios, right, the true Lord of the world. But I want to suggest to you that Matthew has something bigger in mind than all of that. That Jesus was actually a threat to what the Bible calls the prince of this world. What we have often called Satan. Or the devil. That Matthew is setting up the truth that this battle is actually deeply and profoundly spiritual and not physical. You remember the story uh, in Genesis from the garden. Adam and Eve are created. Everything is good. Uh, the serpent, representative of Satan, uh, comes and, and tempts 
Adam and Eve and it leads them into rebellion from God. He leads them into believing they can be rulers of themselves. The Gospel is not good news in that situation. And then, and then God in Genesis chapter 3 comes and, and He speaks curses on all the participants in this rebellion. And, and pretty famously in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, He's speaking a curse to the serpent. This is to Satan. You remember this? And he says, after verse 14, saying he's going to crawl on his belly in the dust for a while, he says in verse 15 that I will put enmity between you and the woman, meaning Eve. And he says, and I will put enmity between her offspring and your offspring. Now, what on earth is God talking about? He's talking about kingdoms in conflict right from the beginning of the divine story. Do you see this? And that all through the Old Testament, we see the seed of the woman that, ultimately, that first starts out as Abel, who was attempted to be killed by his brother Cain. You remember that becomes the seed ultimately becomes Israel. And we have people coming against Israel, people like Pharaoh, people like Babylon, and people from in their own midst. And Israel ultimately finds its fulfillment in Jesus. And this battle continues. The same way there's the seed of the woman, there's the seed of the serpent, right? You've got people like Cain. You've got people like Pharaoh. You've got people like Herod that are always sort of manipulated, used by the great puppet master king that is Satan himself to thwart the move of God. God says to the serpent, yeah, you'll bruise his heel, You're going to inflict pain, but He will crush your head. And here's Matthew invoking this great first prophetic truth about the advance of the kingdom of God. That Herod, in fact, is just a puppet in a bigger scheme that Satan is inflicting on this world as the, the prince of this world. And that whether through Satan or through direct temptation of Jesus or ultimately through a cross of crucifixion, Satan will stop at no ends to defeat this kingdom. And yet we find Jesus elusive, don't we? Jesus, again, defeats His enemy. How? By going into a temporary exile. This time not Egypt, but the grave itself. And emerging from it through resurrection, finally victorious. You see, when we're reading Matthew chapter 2, we're being set up for Matthew chapter 28, right from the jump, that Jesus is not just a baby to, to create a holiday about that's kind of cutesy, but a king coming for battle. And oh, by the way, the battle was never meant to be physical anyway. Paul picks up on this in his letter to the Ephesians, you might remember, when he says, listen, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and the principalities of this world. This battle is spiritual. And Jesus is not just victorious over Herod, who's got some ulcerated entrails, right? Look, somebody needs to look that up later and figure out exactly what happened there. But he ultimately is victorious over the greatest of all enemies, And that sin and death and Satan himself 
the book of Revelation tell us, are tossed into a proverbial, at least, lake of burning sulfur. Something even far greater than a burning fever and ulcerated entrails. Matthew is setting us up then to ask the better question, not just what is Jesus entering into this massive conflict, but what are we supposed to do with Him then? How do we respond to this Jesus? And many of us have spent our Christian life responding just to a baby Jesus who's cute and creates holidays and gives us a religious identity. And Matthew says, "Uh uh-uh. This is a king who's come for battle. This is a victorious king who has crushed all of his enemies. What are you supposed to do with a baby like that? Matthew answers the question. He says, that's why I'm talking to you about the Magi. Don't you see it? Because the Magi show up with a couple of truths about them, right? Here's what I would say about the Magi. They're incredibly faithful people. And their, their faith is so bold that they enter straight into Jerusalem and speak truth right to Herod. Now, you might say, well, maybe they're just naive. They didn't understand. They thought Herod would be a, a looking for this reality. That could be true. That's still incredible faith, right? But this faith doesn't come out of nowhere. It doesn't just appear like a mist out of nowhere. Again, we'll go into great depth. You can look at some of the past sermons about the Magi. But I suggest that the Magi come from a long lineage of faith that begins with the prophet Daniel that God sent into exile and that Daniel that was faithful to God, a witness even in exile, who rose to authority, who had magi around him and underneath him, I think that's where this lineage of faith comes that all of these years later, these people standing on the shoulders of Daniel are still looking for the redemption that Daniel was always talking about. Do you come from that kind of lineage? Are you creating that kind of lineage? And then so as to not believe that this is just a man-made faithful effort, they find a divine sign from God directly in their sphere of influence. I think Matthew wants us to perceive and rightly perceive that not a lot of people were picking up on the star, right? All of a sudden there weren't masses coming because something crazy was going on in the sky. These people were looking for it and God showed up in their search for Him. Do you see it? It was incredibly personal for them. And I would suggest to you, in the same way, God is putting all throughout His creation dynamic signs of His presence for us to discover based on how we're wired and where we are if we're looking intently for Him. We find God in science. We're not anti-science. We find God in music and in education. We find God in intellectual pursuits. And we find God in nature. We find God in all these places because God has put His image in all of these things. So where would a bunch of astrologer-type people find the answer they were looking for? Right where they were looking. Do you see it? 
this is a story about the faithfulness of God that inspires the faith of his people. Incredible. But it's not just faith. It's faith that comes from somewhere. Because the truth of these magi is that they, if, if Herod was hell-bent on killing Jesus, they were, what's the opposite, heaven-bent, kingdom-bent on worshiping Jesus. Do you see this? And this is deeply profound to me because they reoriented their entire lives to pursue and worship Jesus. This wasn't just like a quick weekend getaway, right? This wasn't something they had just saved up for for a little while and did on a whim. This was a years-long thing that they engaged in and in essence laid their lives down before so that they could pursue Jesus. And what's even more telling to me is that their worship was never altered throughout this entire journey. Isn't that fascinating? Like when you show up to the king in his palace and see all of that, wouldn't you at some level be tempted to say, oh, this is where the star was leading. Here's the king. And in so many cases, we lose our gaze on Jesus and turn to would-be kings and queens and rulers in this world that are misguided. They didn't. Likewise, astrologers who in some sense esteemed the stars themselves always remembered these magi that it was the star that led them to the thing they worshipped. That it wasn't the star to be worshipped. What a prophetic message to Christians like us who oftentimes find ourselves misguidedly worshiping the things that tell us about God rather than God Himself. We worship worship experiences rather than the one we're supposed to worship. We worship the Bible rather than the one the Bible is pointing to. You see this? The Magi were so consumed in their worship that they wouldn't accept anything else than Jesus Himself. And when they found Him, it says, they were overjoyed. Do you see this? It's incredible what's going on here. And then think about the vocation of the Magi. That they were kingmakers. In essence, that this whole journey was to announce, even to a foreign place, that the rightful king was here. And they did it with boldness. Stunning. Matthew says, if you want to know what it means to follow the rightful king who's come to set up his kingdom, look no further than the Magi. Stunning, isn't it, that he didn't pick a bunch of Jewish people or a bunch of religious leaders of the day. Instead, a bunch of enigmatic, quirky dudes from the East, right? In essence, and Matthew, by the way, remember, Matthew is the only gospel written specifically to a Jewish audience. You would think he wouldn't include a story like this. But he does on purpose to remind religious people like us that we typically get off the path. So then, I would suggest to you that Matthew, in recording this story, is asking a third question. 
not just what is the context Jesus comes into, and not just then what are we supposed to do about it, but the third question Matthew is setting up us up to ask through the rest of his Gospel is, and what will you do with it? What will you do about it? What about us? What about you and me? How do we respond to Jesus? In essence, I think you could summarize it as succinctly as this. That when you see Jesus for who He actually is, you are left with two choices and only two choices. You will either crown Him or kill Him. You see this? And you say, whoa, that's harsh. And I say to you, "Mm mm-mm. Remember, Matthew is reminding us this is a spiritual exercise, not a physical exercise. This is an exercise of the heart, not the hands. That when you come to actually see Jesus for who He is, a king coming with a kingdom, speaking dethroning power, dethroning truth to power, oh, by the way, not just power like a king sitting on His throne in Jerusalem, but power to a guy like me trying to rule and and control his own life. When you see Jesus for who He really is and what He's asking for, you are left with only two choices. You'll either crown Him or you'll kill Him. Matthew's simply saying, so what will it be? Are you a little more Herod? Or are you a little more Magi? And Matthew, knowing the Gospel well, would know that all of us are on a journey from Herod to Magi. Right? And that that's what this Gospel is all about. The Gospel is not good news for people in power. I speak to you as people in power. People looking to rule your spheres of influence, to control your lives, to do the things you want to do, to maintain the status quo. And I tell you, as kings and queens, where's the rightful king that was just born? And you're left with the choice. Christianity, I would say, could be summed up in this way. It's a choice followed by a myriad of choices. (laughs) Does that make sense? In other words, you have this initial decision. What are you going to do with Jesus? In other words, is Jesus to be worshipped or to be rejected? And for Christians, we say He's to be worshipped and we receive Him. But then we realize that the rest of life is a myriad of decisions. A myriad of small decisions of crown or kill. Well, my kid is just out of control and I'm trying to be a parent in that situation. How do I respond? Is Jesus king or isn't He? Crown or kill? When I find myself full of anxiety in a world that's out of control and I'm trying to to bring everything back into it, it's another moment of faith and worship. Where am I placing my trust? Who's in charge? Will I crown or will I kill? Every moment of every day is a Matthew chapter 2 scenario. Do you see this? Now here's just the honest truth. Unless you are far greater than me, way more than we would like to admit, we take on the role of Herod. Right? Even though we got the initial question right and we've trusted Christ and we've embraced 
him as our king, we like the seat of authority. We just do. And so even in this story, Matthew gives us the antidote, the way for transformation, the means of tapping into the victory over sin and death that Jesus announces in his arrival. Do you know what the antidote is? The Magi. What do they do? They do not just manufacture faith. Their faith comes out of worship. Profound, deep worship. I would suggest to you that even from this very beginning, Matthew is suggesting to us something that the Apostle Paul and other New Testament writers will will tease out in much more profound ways, that the answer to your struggles is the worship of Jesus. Not defeating your struggles yourself. You see this? (laughs) That the answer to your problems, the answer to your patterns of sin, the answer to your moments of lack of peace, the answer to your need for something bigger to yourself is not something of your creation. It is not something of your conjuring. It's the worship of Jesus. Paul says this, I think, no more more profoundly than in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. He's gone the whole books talking about this truth of Jesus, setting up a kingdom, the gospel that comes to save us. And he says, listen, now if you believe this, then the only thing that you can do, the only next choice, the only, listen, the only right choice thereafter, obviously we don't get it right all the time, the only right choice thereafter is to offer yourselves as living and holy sacrifices. In other words, to lay your treasures down at the feet of Jesus. To be king makers, not kings ourselves. That in our worship of Jesus, something profound happens in our hearts that leads us not to worship other things and leads us not to pursue a crown for ourselves. Many of us find ourselves deeply introspective in trying to better ourselves. And I would tell you that your gaze is in the wrong place. That victory is found only in the king who is victorious, not in the creation of illegitimate kings and queens. Wherever you find yourselves, Notice this about the Magi. That the result of their worship is at least two profound things to me in this story. The first is joy. Joy, I think, is something that maybe the the deepest thing that our heart truly longs for. To be full of joy, right? And yet, I think, at least as I talk to people and live life myself, it is perhaps the most elusive thing to get. And yet, the moment the Magi lay eyes on Jesus, what happens to them? What is said of them? They are overjoyed. That that somehow, when we see Jesus for who He really is, and listen to this, and then let Him be that, 
it actually leads to a profound reality of joy. Undetermined by the circumstances of life. That's stunning to me. The second thing is that when we are given to full-hearted and holistic worship of God, we find from God true direction. Now, let's set aside the star for a moment, but how can we? I mean, it's incredible that God meets them through the star. But then even when the star is done and they've met and worshipped Jesus, God again speaks to them profoundly, this time through a dream, and tells them the next steps. You see it? In other words, they hadn't charted out a course. They weren't typing in a new destination in Google Maps. They were dependent upon God to speak, and they were ready to hear when God spoke because they were worshiping Jesus. Do you see this? And God leads them to life, not to death. And it's profound. I don't think it's just nuance here. That Herod, let's just be honest, was not just going to kill Jesus. He was going to kill them too. But even if not, then Jesus. So they go back the normal way. If they don't hear the voice of God, it leads to death. But they do hear the voice of God, and it leads to freedom. It leads to life. It leads to victory. Do you see this? That we are looking for those things in our life in profound ways. Joy peace, victory over our struggles, freedom from the things that bind us. And there it all is in living color at the feet of Jesus. But it takes a profound step of faith that only comes from a deep sense of worship to lay down our gifts, our crowns, our lives at the feet of Jesus. And that worship only comes if we actually believe that Jesus is who He says He is. The true, rightful, victorious, and eternal King who brings peace to this world through His incarnation, His death, and ultimately His resurrection. This Advent, I remind you that Jesus brings victory. But that we tap into that victory over sin and death only through worship. So be amazed anew at who Jesus is. What He has done. And what He will do at His second Advent. Come soon, Lord Jesus, we pray when He once and for all crushes the serpent. And as you do it, remember that just like the Magi, you have been given a special vocation. Somewhat countercultural, somewhat cross-cultural. You look and sound like your neighbors and your colleagues and your family and friends. And yet, they're living for a different kingdom than you are. You're like magi who have shown up from the east. And sometimes we feel a little different, don't we? A little quirky. A little other. And I encourage you as you go, go with boldness. Don't sneak into the country. 
Come with a caravan. And some of you, I encourage, even to speak dethroning truth to power. But always to speak dethroning truth to the power of your flesh. And make much of King Jesus for all the world to see. Can I pray with you? Jesus, we declare that you are the rightful, victorious, and eternal King. There is no other. We also declare that, like Herod, we are clinging to power probably far more ruthlessly than we want to admit. Thanks for not giving us ulcerated entrails, even though we deserve it. Spirit, would you give us the courage to lay our lives down at the feet of Jesus? Would you testify to us even in this moment that that is the right thing to do? That He's the rightful King? We are not. Would you show us? Would you even do for us? Would you speak dethroning truth to the power of our flesh? The power of this world? Would you let us be okay with being a little different than the rest of the people in this world? Because we make much of Jesus? Help us embrace our role in announcing the rightful King. Pray it in your name. Amen. You know, I totally missed the ending of my sermon by jumping too quick, so let me end it now because it's meant to lead into this song. So there's this great Christmas carol that tells the whole story that I was just talking about. Songs of Advent, right? You're like, where is the song in that sermon? There's a song that I love. It's called, um, O Come, O Come, All Ye Faithful. Joyful and triumphant. Come, come you to Bethlehem. Come and behold Him. Born the King of Angels. And the chorus tells us what to do. Come and adore Him. Come be like the Magi. The rightful and victorious King. It goes on in the next verse to say, sing choirs of angels. Sing in exultation. Most of us don't really know what the word exult means. Exult means to lift on high. Exult means to be overflowing with joy in our celebration of what we've come to see. See that? Sing choirs of angels. Sing full of joy. And it says, sing also ye citizens of heaven above us. So we're going to sing this song. We're going to join with the angels. Join in the methodology of the Magi in saying Jesus is the rightful King. We've come to adore Him and to sing in overjoyed fashion together. Let's stand together and we'll sing as we finish.